0: Good morning. Before Pastor Daniel comes out to give us the Word of God, it's my privilege to read for you the passage for this morning. The Word of God comes today in our series in Hebrews from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. This is the reading of the Word of God. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Amen. Now may your hearts be open to the preaching of God's word. Pastor Jimmy.
1: Good morning, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. Specifically, I'm the campus pastor for the Artesia campus. And it is my privilege and pleasure to bring the word of God today as we have just read Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And really, if I had to summarize that passage, and perhaps your Bible even has a little subtitle on, at the top of it, uh, really the ultimate point is that Jesus is greater than Moses. That's what we just read in those six verses. And perhaps that, uh, the impact of that is not quite as pronounced for us today as people living in a Christian context, if you are Christian, Uh, I don't know if anyone here is of Jewish heritage, but that point really had to be made really strongly and clearly to the audience of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, because uh, in the church at that time, they were were Jewish Christians. They were were coming out of the Jewish heritage, and they were tempted, in fact, to return back to the Jewish faith, to, to abandon Christ, and they were getting pressure and persecution and temptation. And so the author of Hebrews has to make this point very strongly. And we do have to remember Moses was great. He, Moses' pedigree was impeccable. He, he was the man. He led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. He was the deliverer. Uh, he was the giver of God's law. Numbers 12.3 even tells us that Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. And that passage in Numbers 12 even goes on to say that Moses had this really special relationship with God, this special intimacy where God spoke to him directly and clearly, unlike the way God spoke to the prophets. And even in our passage, when Moses is referred to as a servant of God, uh, that word servant in our passage in the original language, the Greek, is a very unique word, actually. Uh, it's the only time that word is used in the entire New Testament. Uh, a lot of times you might see the word servant, but that Greek word usually is doulos or perhaps diakonos. But here we see a unique word, therapon. I'm not trying to give a Greek lesson here, but all, all this to say that word theropon is actually a more noble servant. It's a higher level servant. Uh, perhaps even drawing the image of a free person, Someone who's free, who is assisting someone else in a much higher position. That's what a theropone is. And Moses truly represented the Old Testament to these Jewish Christians. He represented the old ways, the old way of having a relationship with God. And yet the preacher is saying, Jesus is greater. Please note, the author is not saying Jesus is great and Moses, he's just all right. He's just all right. No, the, the preacher is saying, we all know how great Moses is, and yet Jesus is even greater. I think about those rare moments in sports when there's this utterly dominant champion, right? be it a player or a team, and, and they just seem uh, untouchable. You think no one will ever be greater than this, this team or champion. And, and then someone comes along, Who's even greater? And they dethroned the champs. And you go, wow, I, I couldn't believe that there could be someone even greater. And that's the image I get when I think about what, what the author of Hebrews is doing with Moses and Jesus. What Moses did greatly, indeed, he did many things greatly, Jesus did even greater. And our passage highlights the big difference, as similar as Moses and Jesus were, he, the, the author highlights the big difference in verses 5 and 6 of our text he says moses was faithful yes he was faithful in all god's house but as what as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later which means he he was pointing forward to jesus moses was faithful as a servant but christ is faithful over god's house as a son moses was only a servant Even if it was a more noble kind of servant, a higher version of a servant, it was still a servant, whereas Jesus was a son. Moses worked for God's family. Jesus is God's family. In fact, he's God himself. And what Moses did greatly, Jesus did even greater. And in verse 1 of our text, Jesus is referred to as the apostle and high priest of our confession. Those are two important words I want to unpack, apostle and high priest. Those are functions that Moses also fulfilled, that Moses also performed uh, in a lesser way, of course. I want to give, give just two quick and easy definitions of apostle and priest. The first one, apostle, is simply someone who is sent by God to be a messenger, a representative of God. And then a priest is someone who performs religious rituals, on behalf of others. Think about the Old Testament. Uh, the priests were the people who gave offerings and made sacrifices on behalf of God's people. Right? And then, of course, Jesus is referred to as the high priest, which simply means the most important priest, the number one priest. And these are functions that Moses fulfilled as well. Even though he, he may not have been specifically referred to as an apostle or a, or a priest, he certainly did these things. And what he did greatly... Jesus did even greater. And if, if we were to summarize these two functions, apostle and priest, in just one word, right? You think about apostle as someone who is sent by God and represents God, and then priest is someone who represents you, right? Represents you, and he, and he does things on behalf of you to God. If there's one word we could use to summarize these two functions, it would be mediator. Moses was certainly a mediator for God's people. They would go to Moses and be like, go to God for us. We know God, you know, he, he, he has wrath over our sin. We messed up. Go to, please go to God for us. Right? They would say that, right? And then God would send Moses with a message or with uh, instruction. Moses certainly fulfilled uh, to a lesser degree that role of mediator. And then Jesus would come and he would fulfill that perfectly. And, of course, the beauty of Jesus being our mediator because he himself is the son of God and, and he is our mediator forever. We don't have to go to another person, another, another human being anymore uh, over and over again and have him you know, as a priest offer up these sacrifices and offerings over and over again. We have a once and for all mediator who mediates on our behalf even now. And because Jesus is the Son of God, we could just go straight to God. We have direct access. Just like we sang, uh, one of the first songs we sang, that the veil was torn. The curtain that separates uh, the most holy place in the temple from everywhere else was torn in two. And we have direct access now. And that is a beautiful thing that only our perfect mediator, Jesus, could accomplish for us. If you were paying attention to the announcements, you do, you know that our 10th anniversary is coming up uh, very soon. We celebrate our anniversary as a church uh, every year, of course, at the end of October. But did you know there's uh, another important day at the end of October? I'm not talking about Halloween. Um, maybe that's important too, but I'm talking about Reformation Day, right? At the end of October, Christian, Protestant Christians, the world around, uh, they celebrate 500 years ago the Protestant Ever since 500 years ago, the Protestant Reformation, where, uh, you know, the reformers of the church helped to, to, to make changes and, and to go back to the original texts of the Bible and to remember what did the Bible really say as they left the Catholic Church. And in the Reformation, these reformers 500 years ago, they, they fought to, to bring back to the forefront this idea Jesus is the only mediator. He is the only one who can offer us direct and special access to God. Not the church. As important as the church is, it's not the church. It's not priests. It's not Mary or Moses or any other saint. But only Jesus offers us that direct, special access to God. There was a family gathering uh, of my family, an extended family, recently that I couldn't make, and uh, Priscilla relayed to me how one of my relatives said, "Oh no, there's no the pastor's not here. How who's going to pray? There's no one to pray now because the pastor's not here." And you know we got a good chuckle out of that because you know we all know. <laughs> Anyone can pray. Any Christian can pray. You don't have to have the pastor to be the one always to pray, and you don't. It doesn't always have to be a pastor that can that goes to God for you, right? That's what the Reformation celebrated. That that as important as pastors are, as great as they are, it's it's Pastors Appreciation Month, right? Uh, we, pastor D and I were joking that it's probably a pastor that made that up. That uh, that October is Pastors Appreciation Month, and it's like I want to get appreciated, um, and thank you for your appreciation, of course. As important as pastors are, they, they are not the ones to represent you to God, right? Like you can go straight to God. It's true that in a large way, pastors represent God to you, right? As well as uh, spirit, other spiritual leaders, older brothers, older sisters in the faith and pastors, they, they represent God to you here on this earth by, by teaching and preaching and pointing you to Jesus. But one thing a pastor cannot do is represent you to God. A pastor cannot stand in your place when it comes to your relationship with God. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus could represent us so faithfully and perfectly and and so fully that he, he would even die in our place for our sins. You know, in the Old Testament, Moses actually offered himself to die in the place of God's people for their sins. In Exodus 32, 32, uh, after the Israelites committed the sin of worshiping the golden calf, he actually offers himself a a very noble thing to do. That's why Moses is great. He says uh, to God, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses says, take me instead, kill me instead, blot me out instead. And He offers himself. And in a, in, in a big way, he's pointing forward to Jesus, right? Because that's what Jesus ultimately did to you. But guess what? When Moses says this to God, God rejects him. God says, no, that's not for you to do. That's not your place. Because God had someone else in store, as we know. God had someone much bigger and better in store. God would have someone in store who would be both God and man, who would represent God perfectly because he is God. He's the son of God. But who would also represent man. Just like Adam did, except Jesus would do it without sin. He would represent man perfectly as well. And he would be big enough to even take uh, all the sin of you, and, of you and me for all of our sin on that cross. And he'd be strong enough to bear the wrath of God on that cross. Only the Son of God himself could do that, Jesus Christ. And because the Son of God... Gave himself up for sinners. Sinners can now be sons and daughters of God. Verse six tells us, "We are His house." What what a statement! We are the house of God, right? You didn't uh, enter a building and that's the house of God. No, you and I together, and of course not just Christ Central, but the church all around the world. We are the house of God. We are the household of God. In other words, we are. The family of God now. Because the one who was God's family gave himself up. Now you and I are all part of God's family. In verse 6 of our text written up there for you. You probably didn't notice this though. In that wonderful, in that wonderful statement, we are his house. There is a big if there, isn't there? We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. If we hold fast, if we cling tightly, if we grasp and, and don't let go of the confidence that we have and the hope, the boasting in our hope that we have. You know, throughout the book of Hebrews, we see that idea of holding fast over and over again. And we have to remember, it's be, once again, it's because the, the audience of the book of Hebrews was facing persecution and opposition and pressure and they needed to hold fast. And it is super important to ask, why? Why do we have to hold on so tightly? Why is that said over and over again in the book of Hebrews? And this is important. Please note this. Holding fast, grasping tightly, clinging closely is not a rule. It is not a requirement. As in, it's not like... uh, Uh, If you hold, if you cling, like God's going to reward you. If you cling tightly, then God will be happy, and now He'll give you the blessing. He'll make you a son. He'll make you a daughter. That's not how it works. Why do we have to hold tightly and grasp closely and hold fast? Because. That's the only way we're going to survive. You've been hearing that already throughout the sermon series. That's how we survive. In the midst of pressure and opposition and the attacks of Satan and the temptations of the world. That's how we're going to make it. That's how we're going to persevere. By holding on for dear life to what we believe. A few years ago, I had a near-death experience, a very real near-death experience. Uh, I'll spare you most of the details because it makes me look foolish, but what ended up happening was I, I almost drowned. I almost drowned in a river that had very rapid waters, and uh, you know, I, was, I, was, I couldn't get a hold because the waters were so rapid. And I, I was obviously not in my, you know, my tubing, my tube device. I was, I was on my own. I was being tossed around by the water. And eventually, I was losing strength, too. So I was drinking so much water. And that's how you drown, right? You just drink so much water, you can't drink anymore, and then you, you die. Uh, thankfully, that didn't happen. And I'm here today to bring you the Word of God. And uh, what ended up happening, the reason why I lived, I really do believe this, is because there was this rock Sticking out of the water, just this big rock, and I was like panicking. I, was, I felt so helpless, and I saw that rock, and I just grabbed it with all my might. And uh, it, was, it was like just big enough to grab with my whole body, and the, the, the rapid waters were crashing on my back violently. You know, also, I was expelling all the water that I drank. And thankfully for that rock, I was able to catch my breath. I was able to get the water out so that I could make it safely. Uh, to this down the river and to the more still part of the river and as I was thinking about what it means to hold fast I just couldn't help think of that picture right Uh, you know an out-of-body experience where I just see myself holding on to that rock and the thing about it is spiritually speaking it doesn't always. Have, you don't have to look and feel good. Clean. Hold fast to what you believe. Does not mean you have it all together. You're you always know and are always on top of everything. You know everything. You have all the answers. And you know you're you're always holding your head up high. That's not what hold fast means. Sometimes hold fast looks like me clinging to that rock. The 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 water's crashing violently on your back. You're even throwing up. You don't look good. You don't feel good. But what matters is you are clinging tightly to the rock. You are clinging tightly to what you believe. You are clinging tightly to Jesus Himself. And our passage actually gives us another way of looking at that. It's actually the only command in our passage. Uh, literally, out of the six verses we read, there's one command, and that command is found in the first verse. And that command is consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Two words. And unfortunately, I think for us these days, the way we use the word "consider" uh, in our minds, sometimes we think of consider Jesus as give a passing thought, just a small—it's a small thing, just you know, just give a little thought to Jesus. But in the Greek, actually, that's not what it means. Many have defined the word "consider" here in the Greek as scan closely, think carefully. In the NIV, actually, it's translated as fix your thoughts. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Scan Jesus closely. Think carefully about him. And isn't that what it means to cling, to hold fast? You're holding on for dear life. You're looking intently. Like that, that rock in that moment meant so much to me because that's how I got all the water out, and that's how I caught my breath. To consider Jesus the way the author of Hebrews uses it is not to think about Jesus only on a Sunday. That's not considering Jesus. Jesus only enters your mind on Sundays when you go to church or when you watch online. Uh, to consider Jesus is not to pray sporadically and read the Bible sporadically, or, or you know the only prayer you ever pray is, thank you, God, for this food, amen right? That's not considering Jesus. I love what the British preacher John Blanchard once preached. He actually passed away this year, but here's what he preached. He said, sure, we only have to be realistic and honest with ourselves to know how regularly we need to turn to the Bible, and I want to just insert anything that helps you to consider Jesus. Turn to the Bible, pray, sing worship songs, fellowship with the saints. How often do we face problems, temptations, and pressure every day? Then how often do we need instruction, guidance, and greater encouragement? Every day. To catch all these felt needs up into an even greater issue, how often do we need to see God's face, hear His voice, feel His touch, know His power? The answer to all these questions is the same. Every day. And once again, please don't get me wrong, church. It is not because this is a requirement and a rule, but because this is how we survive no one requires you to eat and drink water and sleep every day right that's not a rule in your life right and if it is then there's something perhaps wrong with you if you have to make that into a rule to eat sleep and drink water every day but we still got to do it every day don't we not because it's it's a requirement or a rule but simply because that's how we're going to live that's what we need and of course you can call yourself a Christian and go to church and do Christian stuff for the rest of your life. And you could perhaps even make it to the rest, rest, rest of your life doing those things without considering Jesus, without fixing your eyes on Jesus, without clinging tightly to the rock. That, that is possible. But what I'll tell you is what's going to end up happening is you will end up looking only like a mere servant by the end of it. You will never look like a son. You will never look and feel like a daughter. Because the more you consider Jesus, the more you resemble Jesus. Right? Just like how you are what you eat, right? You are what you fix your thoughts on. You know, Moses, he was a great servant. And so he can make you into a servant. A good one, too. A servant of God. And that's not a bad thing. Certainly worse things you can be. Uh, you could fix your eyes on worse things and become worse things. But Moses can only make you a servant. But Jesus, because he is the son, can make you a son, can make you a daughter. We are called to hold on and hold tight and hold fast to our confidence. Over and over again in the book of Hebrews, you see that word confidence, confidence with confidence. And I love this definition of confidence that I I stumbled upon in a a Greek dictionary for the New Testament. I love this definition. It says, an attitude of openness that stems from freedom and lack of fear. I don't know about you, but I really want that. An attitude of openness that stems from freedom and and a lack of fear. And, And isn't that really the heart of a child who belongs to loving parents, who is standing before his or her loving parents. An attitude of openness, without without fear and with freedom. That is the heart of a child. That is the heart of a son or daughter. And uh, before we close, I just want to give two ways that being a son, being a daughter, grants us This special kind of confidence here's the first way sons and daughters they have confidence in the love and promise of their father they're confident because they know their father loves them their heavenly father loves them and they know that their father has promised them and he's and he keeps his promises and what i what do i mean by promise i I think galatians chapter 4 6 and 7 helps us it, it makes a very similar uh, juxtaposition of being a son versus being a servant. In this case, even lower, a slave. And here's what it says. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. An heir through God. And, and why so much fixation on sons right why 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 is it only about sons why why is it so male centric uh, and of course we have to recognize it's not about being a male but it is the reason why the word son" is used over and over again here is because it's about being an heir it's about being an heir in, in the time of the Bible two thousand years ago in Jesus' time it was the son, especially the eldest son who would receive the majority of the inheritance it's the eldest son who would get uh the 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 biggest share of his father's possessions and his property. And the idea is this because of the great eldest son, Jesus, and because he brings you in, whether you're a, man, a son or a daughter, whether you're a man or a woman, you are now an heir, you have now an inheritance. The inheritance that belonged to Jesus is now yours. And that gives us confidence. A son is confident. A son knows that inheritance is secure. Right? He can't lose it. Right? A servant, a worker, a hired hand, they know they could get fired. Right? They could get fired. They know they have to earn their keep. But a son says, no, I know what I have is secure. And I know you can't fire me. Or if, 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 if a parent ever fires you from the family, they could fire you. If you're an employee, they could fire you from the job, but they can't fire you from the family. And if they do, then definitely there needs to be some kind of counseling. But typically, a, a parent cannot fire you. A father will not fire his son. Your inheritance is promised and secured. And because of that, you can hold fast. To your confidence. Because you know your father holds fast to you. His love and promise are secure. But you know what else the confidence of a son or a daughter does? It actually makes you serve. Right? I I know I'm making all these contrasts. Well, I'm not making these contrasts. The author of Hebrews is. There's all these contrasts between being a servant and being a son. But guess what? When you are a son, when you are a daughter, it'll actually make you serve. It'll actually help you to serve but not as a mere servant. I don't know anyone who has even just a decently healthy relationship with their parents who doesn't want to serve their parents. Right? If you have a decently healthy relationship with your parents, you're probably someone who would say, yeah, there's nothing I wouldn't do for my parents. I will give, I will sacrifice. The idea of being a son or daughter does not mean now you just do nothing because I don't think that's what a son and daughter does. And when they're part of the household, when they're part of their household, you now have a new heart, a new motivation to actually give and serve and love and, and sacrifice like you've never done before. Because, you know, before as a servant, if, you're, if all you are as a servant, then your motivations will be obligation, duty, not necessarily bad things in and of itself. And worse, your, your motivations will be guilt and fear. And that's what will drive you if, that's, if, if a servant is all you are. And you know those things, obligation, guilt, fear, those things might actually make you work hard for a while. It might actually give you the energy for a good sprint. But it will never be enough for the marathon of the Christian life. And even if it were, even if guilt and fear and obligation were enough to help you make it all the way to the end, would would you want it to? Would you want that to be your motivation and your heart? We are called to serve, but only with the hearts of sons and the hearts of daughters. You know, at our church, I'm sure you're aware of this. We've been calling for more volunteers. We've been very openly talking about our need for more volunteers, and it's just a reality. It's a fact. Every church needs a lot of volunteers. But please, please do not take that as, I need to just give and give and give, simply out of obligation and guilt. No, please do not serve without the heart of a son or a daughter. Please do not serve without the heart of knowing. There is nothing I can give that would add to my status before God, that would add to my approval before God, that would add to my conscience before God. Because I already have the highest status I could possibly have because of Jesus, the status of a beloved child. And now everything I give, all my time, my energy, my blood, sweat, and tears, all of that is a response, not a requirement. And you can do that because you know the love and promise of your Heavenly Father. Because you are secure in that, knowing that that can't be taken away. You can't get fired. That's the first way that we have confidence as sons and daughters. Here's the second way. Sons and daughters have confidence because they belong to a family. Because they belong to a family. Verse 6 tells us, we are his house. We are the household of God. Verse 1 even says, therefore, holy brothers. And that word can also mean brothers and sisters. And it says, we share in a heavenly calling. And one commentator of the book of Hebrews writes about how uh, the Jewish Christians at the time of the writing and preaching of the book of Hebrews they may have been even cut off from their families because they had come to Christ they may have even lost relationships and and they may have even lost their circle of friends because they had come to Christ and perhaps that is why hebrews emphasizes so much this idea of being of the fact that you're part of the family now a new family god as your father jesus as your faithful older brother and Having many, many more brothers and sisters through the church in the same heavenly calling, and certainly that was the experience of many of those Jewish Christians in the time of the Book of Hebrews, and for sure that's the experience of many Muslims who come to Christ, uh, depend, depending on certain uh, where they live in certain when they live in certain countries, and maybe that's even to a certain degree what you're feeling—that you're losing friends or clout uh, because of christ you know as more and more people seem to be deconstructing their faith or deconstructing the church on social media or or in conversations and i I think the experience of young adults often is the case where you graduate college where you had a lot of christian friends you're part of a large christian circle and then you go into the workplace and even if it's not always true you feel like man I'm the only Christian here in this whole company. And the book of Hebrews reminds you, you are never alone. You have a family. You have brothers and sisters. You have people who will spur you on and encourage you, even when the pressure gets thick. Even when it seems like everyone else is leaving. And we probably never felt our need for this spiritual family more than because of the pandemic, during the pandemic. When our ability to gather and have fellowship in person and worship in person, when that ability was taken away from us. And then now upon gathering again in person like this, what a beautiful sight. I think we all kind of realize, man, that's not just something I missed. Oh, I miss in-person worship. I just miss it. No, it's something I need. I need to see my family. I need to be with my family. I need to worship with my family. That's how I survive. I think everyone felt this way during the pandemic, right? That, that your spiritual life was suffering. That, that perhaps you felt during the pandemic, my, my, my spiritual life is kind of dry. I don't think that's an unusual thing. If, that, if you felt that way, you are certainly not alone. And I think a lot of us, uh, we rationalized it by saying, you know, the pandemic made me realize, you know, being stuck at home, not being able to go to church, not being able to do small group in person, all of it made me realize my relationship with God is just not as good as I thought. And that that could definitely be true. And if it is true, that is a good realization. But I do want to offer a pause and to say maybe there's more to it than that. Maybe it's not just, oh, your relationship with God is just not that good. Maybe there's more to it. Maybe it's because no matter how strong your relationship with God is one-on-one, you still need to see your family. You still need to be with your family. I was talking with a brother uh, recently who shared how he got to spend some time with his parents and his sibling who live out of state. And even though their time together wasn't particularly profound. It's not like they did anything special together. It's not like something lovey-dovey was said by the family. Just being together just refreshed him and gave him the well-needed boost for the sake of going on uh, and doing what he needed to do in life. And I think that's so true spiritually too. We need to be with our family. We need to see our family. We need to worship with our family. Praise God that we can do that again. And for those who are worshiping online with us, Especially if you have concerns about COVID. I am so grateful that we have our online live stream means of worshiping. But even for you, I look forward to, I, I, I'm, I'm eager for the day when you can return in person again as well. Because we need it. We need it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian, he famously said how we need both, right? You need to be able to be alone with God, but you also need to have community. It's not one or the other. It's not one or the other. For sure, if, you're, if you don't have a one-on-one relationship with God, no amount of community will give you that relationship with God. You have, to, you, have to go direct, you have to be able to go directly to God through Jesus, especially made possible by that perfect mediation of Jesus. That is true. But let me also tell you this. No matter how strong your relationship with God might be, without community, it will never be that strong. It will never be quite strong enough. We are not meant to do this alone. We are meant to spur each other on. That's how we're going to make it. And we're going to hear about that throughout the book of Hebrews. That we are to continue gathering with one another. Not neglecting that. Encouraging each other. Spurring each other on. We need both. You need to go to God directly. That special access is yours because of Jesus. Because that veil was torn. Oh, but how we need to see our family. How grateful I am that I see my family right now. And as we close, please just keep considering the sun. Not a passing thought, but fix your thoughts. Cling tightly to that rock. That's what's going to make you look more and more and feel more and more like a son and daughter and not just a mere servant. That's what's going to give you the confidence when you look at Jesus, when you fix your thoughts on Jesus, when you remember he's the one that, that was perfect, perfectly righteous in your place. He's the one that gave himself up for you. He's the one that said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Would that give you a confidence that nothing in this world could ever give? And would you look around and see your brothers and sisters, your family? And would it be so encouraging? Would it be so affirming? Would it grant you perseverance as we look at Jesus together and as we help each other to do that? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the fact that Jesus is greater. That he is our faithful and perfect mediator that the curtain of of the temple was torn in two, that we can come to you directly. We don't need anyone else to give us special access to you. And not only that, we can come to you with confidence, with the sons, with the hearts of sons, with the hearts of daughters, crying out, Abba, Father, and knowing you look at us with delight and knowing we're not in this on our own that we can do this with each other. Thank you for that reality. Thank you for that privilege of being part of your house, that we are your house because of Jesus. Would that make all the difference in how we serve and how we give and how we sacrifice? Would that make all the difference in how we persevere? Because of the adoption that was purchased by the blood of Jesus. We thank you for that. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.